Hello and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. Today we're going to be talking about rural America, how it became infested with the alt-right, and how Democrats and Republicans can serve them better. Let's get started. I've been thinking about rural America a lot lately. I went back to my grandpa's house for my birthday last month, and he still lives in the same little town that he's lived in my whole life. I used to live there too. Over the last 20 years, I've seen that town through its ups and downs. I remember when Walmart came. I remember coming back as a teenager and seeing Main Street boarded up. The bike shop that sold me my first big girl bike, closed. The bakery that I used to get cookies from, closed. The Basque restaurant that used to be the, uh, the center of town, closed. I hated that. But when I was back there recently, one of the things that really stuck out to me was how often we ask rural America to settle for less. They settle for less in so many ways. Healthcare, social services, government accountability, food quality, economic opportunity. The country doesn't ask, it expects. It expects them to accept less. We ignore places like the town that my grandpa lives in. They get ignored at the state level and the federal level, and they pay the same taxes that we do. They are afforded the same rights that we are. They are equally as American as any other American in any other part of the country. But they don't get the benefits. Their tax dollars fund infrastructure and improvement projects in whatever city is nearest to them. And we just act like that's fine. The only place that they aren't treated like second-class citizens is the Electoral College, but that is a conversation for a different day. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture of rural America as this, like, derelict dump that makes it sound like they need your pity or your charity. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is that we as a country have left them behind. We've forgotten about them. The only time that you even hear about rural America in the news, if you don't live there, is when Democrats are looking for votes or when they're bemoaning Trump's support in small towns. Parts of small-town America used to be reliably blue. Some were red. In my opinion, most are purple. But now, large swaths of rural America are dark red. Not just Republican. If it was traditionally Republican, I'd be happy with that. I think traditional conservatism lines up well with small-town values. And to be honest, personally, my more conservative leanings were all grown in that small town in Nevada. I have no problem with that. I think it's good. But what I do have a problem with is the blight of white nationalism that seems to occupy rural America these days. It just doesn't line up with the good, God-fearing, salt-of-the-earth people that make up that part of the country. How did they get so radicalized? When did they start sounding so much like Trump? How did they get so angry? Those are the questions that you read about in long-form pieces that fill up sites like The Atlantic or The New Yorker, and honestly, you're hearing them here. I've even heard people in my own social circles complain. How can they support Trump? Don't they know his policies hurt them? Why do farmers support him? Don't they know that he started the trade war that hurt them so much? It's a fair question, and I get it. What I can't stand is the subtext of that statement, which is why are they too dumb to vote in their own self-interest? I hate that shit. I think that the country, red and blue, talks down to small-town America in a way that I cannot stand. It's like they're implying that if you don't live in a big city, you can't be educated or you can't know how to do things. And honestly, I would argue, um, 
take somebody that's lived in a city their whole life and tell them to make food out of the earth and see how that goes. Or ask them to fix their car when it breaks down and see if they know how. Or ask them if they know their neighbor's name. And then let's talk about who really has superiority, right? I mean, we're all just doing our best. Rural, urban, it's all different problems, different solutions. We're all just doing our best. So while I don't like their subtext, I don't like their tone, and I don't like that they only ask these questions during election season, the questions that they're asking are fair. Over the last decade or so, small towns in rural America have gotten redder and redder. They've become a breeding ground for the alt-right, and people that live there have thrown their support behind a lying, cheating billionaire from New York City. How does that happen? I'm not sure that my great-grandpa would have trusted somebody that had lived in the city their whole life to put gas in his truck, let alone run the country. That's what I was thinking about when I met Ross Banesh. Ross is the author of a book called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. He's written for many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Smithsonian Magazine, 538, and Rolling Stone. So he's no schmuck. Uh, He seemed like the perfect person to talk to these questions with. So, without further ado, Ross Banesh. Ross, hello. Thank you for being Thank with me. Thank you for me. being with me. Yep. I guess as far as the interview goes, I have a lot of questions. So, okay. Um, I kind of wanted to start with what motivated you to write a book about rural America? So, um, what motivated me to write about a book about rural America is I saw it overtaking the conversation in the press, this urban rural divide. And I wanted to add in my own two cents because I've lived the vast majority of my life in a town of 300 people. And now I live in the largest city in the United States. So I've seen both ends of the spectrum in a drastic way. And I thought telling the story of the urban rural divide through my experience of living in small town Nebraska and New York City would one be one way to make that story um, accessible and uh, meaningful. So what what is your experience? I mean, uh, I've lived in small towns before, but never 300. What What is that like? You know, it was great for growing up. I, there definitely were times where you'd get bored because we didn't have a lot of um, options for entertainment. You know, you'd kind of entertain yourself. And, and I played a lot of sports which helped pass the time. And I, I played guitar and made movies with my friends and stuff. But, um, you know, you, you're really isolated and you don't really realize how isolated you are until you leave, that it's um, you're kind of in an outlier situation to live in a town that has no, um, there's no uh, street lights, you know, no police force. Um, there's no restaurants. You can get food at the bar, but there's no standalone restaurants. There's no quick shop or, or, or gas station, you know, stuff like that. I mean, just a lot of things people take for granted. No gyms, no movie theaters. Um, there's a church and a school and a few other ancillary businesses like my dad's plumbing business and um, the electrician shop. But, you know, it's not... Uh, you have to go elsewhere to do most things. But it was great for, you know, being unsupervised. Um, my parents didn't have to be helicopter parents because... Not much is going to happen to you in Brainerd when you know everyone and hardly anyone comes into town and there's no traffic and the streets are wide and you can ride your bicycle everywhere you want. What role? 
What impact do you think that kind of isolation has on people in those communities? I believe that's part of what um, has made them less receptive to government policies. When you're isolated like that, you kind of can feel like those from the outside are against you or they don't have your best interests or they're ignorant of what you really need. So government feels so disconnected. So something that is big government is like very terrible in their eyes and, and, and it's easy for politicians to brand whatever they're against as being big government to turn people against it so um it isn't clear out there how the government may benefit you so you, you don't think you need regulation of pollution or fireworks or firearms you just kind of want to live with your neighbors and not be told anything and um i believe that sentiment has made republicans more favorable to those in those really tiny towns. In the, I want to jump off of something that you just said. In the lead up to this interview, I was reading one of the articles that you had written on this topic, and you brought up this idea that people in rural communities are often receiving more federal money than people in urban communities. But then they have this negative sentiment towards government. Can you walk me through that? Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, so and when I say more money, like when you just think about stuff like public schools or roads or, or even healthcare systems, it's going to cost more per capita to fund those things in a tiny area where there are a few people than when you're in a city where you would have uh, economies of scale. So, and also there's, you know, huge ag support in, in rural areas yeah. as well. In the rural areas, you, you tend to see more dollars actually flow that way. But from their perception, they're not thinking about it like a think tank analyst. They're just seeing their town shrink and their schools consolidate and their businesses close. And in most of those small towns, their town is much worse off than it was like 40 years ago. And it's easy to blame the government for that. So they become skeptical that the government will have solutions to any of their problems, even if that solution is, is as simple as providing health care to people who can't afford it. That's something they don't want the government in their lives. That's like part of the backlash to Obamacare. So in that rural area, government is just in the community not viewed good, even though you may be getting more per capita. You don't have as many overall services in your way of life. Your, your quality of life has declined over time. So you would hear people say things like, what are you doing, working for the state? Like, you know, whenever they think you're not working hard. Like, that's what my dad would tell me if I was, wasn't was like helping him plumb pipes, you know, the way I should be or, or, or helping him install an air conditioner. He'd be like, what the hell are you doing, working for the state? It gets like, that's the way government is viewed there. So I guess in your book, Rural Rebellion, you talk a lot about... Uh taking back rural America. So I think that the the first question is, how did we lose them? Yeah. Um, and when you say, how do we lose them? Are you referring like, how did the Democratic Party lose rural America? I mean, honestly, no. I feel like the country has lost rural America. Like I, when I was little, I grew up in a pretty small town. I mean, not 300 small, but a small town in Nevada. And it's eastern Nevada. So it's just surrounded by just dirt. And... I don't even really think it's a Republican or Democrat issue. It's like when I go back there, that community is kind of, it's like it's lost or it exists outside of the rest of the country. 
in a way, it's become so isolated that it's almost a country unto itself. Because when you're there, perceptions are different. The culture is different. The economy is different. The industries that are thriving, they're not thriving everywhere else, you know? I mean, I guess what I would say to clarify my original question is how did the country lose sight of the priorities in rural America? Well, you know, rural America isn't where um, many media sources are located. There's not um, a ton of Fortune 500 companies operating in rural areas. So their voices over time haven't been as heard as much. You know, there, there may be some wealthy farmers independently, but like they don't have, um, you know, the the marketing power that all these corporations and all these um, media sources do that tend to be located in cities. In, in rural America, the industries that have been there have been um, kind of hollowed out and, and it's created a brain drain in many areas. The, mid, the Midwest has a, a worse brain drain than, than any other region. And in Nebraska specifically, it, it's really bad. I'm, I'm an example of that. Um, so, you know, people leave much more often than they stay there. And um, as their population has shrank and these um, mega cities have become more influential over the direction of our country, it's reduced the, um, the, the amount of attention that's given to rural areas. The only reason we're paying attention to them now is because they helped elect Trump in 2016. You know, if, if Hillary Clinton won, I don't think rural areas would be getting much coverage still. And do you think that that's because Trump paid attention to them? Well, yeah, you know, he, he gave the appearance that he cared about them. And I think something that w- is very satisfying to the people I know in, in rural Nebraska, like my family and friends, is they feel looked down upon. They, they, they feel like they get talked down to. And, and Trump tells everyone from people in the press like myself to uh, academics to, uh, you know, powerful business people, F you, you know, like they, they find that satisfying, even if he, he's not really designing any policies that actually benefit their lives. There's this like um, satisfactory vengeance they get, like whereas like someone in, in a New York uh, press person sees his unhinged press conference as being like something that they hate, something that's dangerous to democracy. In Nebraska, they laugh their ass off and they're like, wow. That guy's hilarious. I'm glad that he's sticking it to the man, even though, you know, mm-hmm. Trump's a billionaire from New yeah. York City. But uh, that's the perception. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's almost no better example of this than his trade war with China that, like, disproportionately impacted farmers. And then we had to have an, a farmer's relief aid package yeah. to get them out of that. And it was it was a trade war on a whim. And then you have states like California that did not receive as much money in that aid package. Well, yeah, the aid package definitely benefited the red states who tended to support him. Right, right. And it's funny is if because if any like other industry got that type of bailout, um, it'd be viewed as socialism to the people I know in Nebraska. But but when it benefits their industry and their politician pushed it. Um, they will work around the cognitive dissonance and come around to support it. I totally agree. It's this sort of like, it's the dark side of American exceptionalism because 
in my opinion, we basically, we have the American dream that says that you as an individual can do whatever you want, be whoever you want, no matter the cost. And that radical individualism in many ways is what has made us successful as a country. But then there's stuff like this and it frustrates me because I feel like sometimes we as a people are so focused on our individual prosperity that it creates worldviews like this where you're basically saying, oh yeah, it's socialism for everyone else, but for me, it's hard-earned relief that is necessary and essential. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I um, am an individualist in many ways, and, and I think people have more agency than um, liberals tend to give them. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you've seen a lot of nuttiness embracing individuality over the last year. I mean, you, you see it in COVID protests too. Totally. Totally. I think uh, for me, up until this year, I've been pretty firmly on the on the individual liberty side of things until we couldn't wear a mask without it being a political issue. And then it's like, nope, that is the line. That's it right there. Yeah, it's gotten to asinine uh, proportions. So uh, with Trump, uh, he weaponized grievance, right? And mm-hmm. you're saying that that landed in rural America. So one question that I have is, if it wasn't Trump, do you think that any other, like, Republican nominee would have um, grabbed their interests the same way? Or do you think that it was particular with him? I think any Republican nominee will grab most of that interest. Trump probably just gave it a little extra juice than what, like, a you know, a normal Republican, like, Mitt Romney. But, um, you know, McCain, Romney, both won in... in um, rural America as well, not to the degree Trump did. Um, I, I think Trump supporters, though, are, are just much more vocal about um, appreciating his grievances than, like, you know, the middle-of-the-road Republican candidates who were, you know, very much kind of bland and establishment-like. Um, you, you don't see people, um, you know, saying that their political opponents need to be thrown in jail two years after an election. Like, that was in upstate New York. <laughs> yeah, I was in upstate New York in like uh, it was like uh, winter 2018, full two years that I still saw Hillary for jail signs. You know, it's got to let it go at some point. Yes, like she's just now a woman living in her home. Yeah. I mean, she even lost. You know, so yeah, um, they didn't. Those 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 stayed up a long time. They might even still be up. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, okay, so historically rural areas have not always been solid red. So mm-hmm. then how did Democrats lose sight? Yeah, well, the parties have changed so much. Um, I mean, if, if you're going to go back like 100 years or more and talk about like William J. Bryan, you know, that that's a way different uh, Democratic Party than today's party. Um, the rural area, you know, embracing abortion, abracing identity politics, these things have been successful for Democrats in the cities. They are not in, in the rural areas. And of course, media consumption um, has changed drastically e- even since just the 90s. You know, repealness of fairness doctrine, rise of cable news, um, rise of internet news sources. That That's all had an effect. There are many things, but I, I don't think the issues that Democrats tend to focus on the most resonate in rural America. And it's very easy for Republicans to brandish them as being um, 
you know, anti-Christian or secular or, um, you know, against individual rights, things that these people in small towns have been taught to hold dearly. These are all stereotypes, but they, they, they tend to work in political messaging, unfortunately, over the last 20 years. What role do you think that religion plays in all of that? Oh, a huge part. A huge part because in, so religion plays a massive part, and 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 in the '90s, especially, and, and today absolutely as well, the culture wars have been a bigger issue with um, evangelical churches, even within the Catholic Church. You know, it, it's much more about these, uh, you know, frivolous culture war things. Maybe some people don't view them as frivolous, but when you've, um, you know, heard. 20,000 sermons on abortion and, and nothing on protecting the environment, you know, it, it starts to seem a little silly at, at some point. So I believe the church has had a huge impact because as the churches became more politically involved, they talk about this in their masses in, or in their ceremonies, um, you know, that they, they go out and help campaigns. They'll basically endorse candidates, even if they don't officially. And that messaging is much more effective than just buying ad space um, in a newspaper or on a TV station because people go to church. They're not necessarily like putting up their safeguards to protect themselves against political messages. Like when an ad goes on TV and it's like from a Republican or Democrat, people kind of tune out. They just want to watch their football game. They're, they want the ad to be over. When they're going to church, they're getting a lot of fulfillment and like things that enrich their lives. And if politics is just kind of sprinkled in, it's much more effective. You know, it's coming from... Um, a place of community and from someone you know as opposed to something that's distant that's being forced onto you because people are voluntarily going to church they're not voluntary you know they may be voluntarily watching football and the ads come on but they don't necessarily want to watch those ads but they do want the sermon and they're not watching the ads to learn whereas yeah. when you go to church it's to be taught something well yeah and it's you know to better yourself and and to um you know bring your family together and, um, you know, all, all these good things that churches really do provide, but they, they're also providing politics and there are uh, left-wing churches and there are some very progressive pastors, but they're significantly outnumbered by mm -hmm. right-wing churches and denominations. The, the church's influence on, on like the left is, is nothing like it is compared to what it is on the right and its influence in the Republican party. And, and that I believe really began taking off during Reagan, and we've just continued to see more and more of it. Do you think that that's driven more by the party's values or by the urban-rural divide? There's more Democrats in cities, and there's there's mm -hmm. less church-going populations in cities. Like, which one drives the other? I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think Republicans found that was an effective way to pull some voters away, um, you know, especially after... Um, you had like Supreme Court decisions like 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 abortion. I have talked about it a lot. That wasn't as bifurcated by party before it was a national decision by the Supreme Court and Republicans after that, you know, very much pushed out their moderate candidates slowly. And you kind of had to be um, pro-life if you wanted to win as a Republican. And that's that effective for them. And vice versa for the Democrats. I mean, they they purge their um, pro-life candidates. You know, to be a pro-life Democrat now is a oxymoron. Right. I, yeah. It's. I mean, it's. I feel for people that 
are on that side of the issue because it is such a divisive one because it's such a moral issue for so many people that if you are pro-life but agree with everything else in the democratic party you're kind of in a tough spot yeah because you have to compromise on one of those two things i think that's hard and democrats have done a terrible job of um saying those voters are still welcome i mean they the republicans will welcome any voter I mean, even, mm-hmm. I'd say even too many voters in some cases, like like they should tell the Proud Boys to like not be a part of their party. <laughs> you can't sit with us. <laughs> yeah, like someone should exclude them. Whereas Democrats, and especially in recent times, if you're not like as progressive as the most progressive Democrat, like you just get shit on. Joe Manchin is having a hard time on Twitter right now. Yeah, and you know what? Joe Manchin's having a hard time, and you know what? He doesn't represent people in New York. He represents West Virginia. Exactly. And you know, he's if, if Joe Manchin didn't run for re-election, they're not going to elect a Democrat. They're going to do the same thing that happened in Nebraska when Ben Nelson left. Progressives are very annoyed at Ben Nelson, uh, even though he represented Nebraska. He was a Democrat. He was a moderate Democrat. But when he left... He was replaced by Deb Fisher, one of the most conservative Republicans in the Senate. And the same thing would happen in West Virginia. It's not like West Virginia is a hotbed of liberalism. <laughs> yeah. Joe Manchin's as good as you're going to get from that state. You may be annoyed with him from time to time, but people who are annoyed with him, you don't live in his district. And he represents his district. That's what frustrates me so much is like if he was out here talking like AOC, he wouldn't be serving his constituents. No, he wouldn't. And if AOC talked like Joe Manchin, she wouldn't be serving her constituents either. Right. They, I think that the people that you elect should reflect their community. It's yeah. like if you want Kirsten Cinema to always vote down the party line, she's going to lose Arizona. Yeah. But Democrats have demanded fealty, and um, I, don't, I don't think that's helped them. Yeah, I, the purity tests definitely, definitely do not. I mean, we had a Democratic mayor candidate in Omaha four years ago get denounced by the DNC because he voted for an ultrasound bill like four years prior to that in the state legislature. And, um, you know, it's a mayor position, you know, he's going to the best he can do is support unions and fix potholes and, you know, have a reasonable police budget. He's, he's not this isn't he's not going to decide a, you know, national case law, but. DNC still came after him. We've nationalized everything. Exactly. Everything's nationalized. And that's been an albatross for uh, Democrats in rural areas. Harder for Democrats to take their own stand and, and deviate from their party. And what rural America wants isn't just the Democratic Party platform. Right. And in, and they shouldn't. It's like uh, policies that work in New York don't work in Nebraska. Yeah. I guess just circling back, my question is, do the... Do you believe that the Republican Party is serving rural America well right now? No, I do not. Elaborate, please. <laughs> Republican Party's biggest policy uh, issue lately has just been tax cuts for the rich. And rural America is tends to be poorer than urban areas. I mean, there, there is some abject poverty in, in urban areas and, and a lot of homelessness. But there's a lot of wealthy people, too. And in rural America, you don't have nearly the share of wealthy people that you have in in some of these mega cities. So I I don't believe Republicans have um, really benefited them at all. And and even the grievance issues that they've supported, you know, Republicans um, have had control of the presidency and Congress and Supreme Court prior to this last election for the last few years. Um, You know, they didn't uh, end 
uh, you know, nationwide abortion or, or gay marriage or any of these things they campaign on, you know, um, they, they just use them as a, a wedge issue to, to get people out. So I, I don't think they've actually delivered on what they've promised to rural America. Well, and how, how many presidents is it going to take to get rural America some fucking broadband? <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Every year it's like, we're going to get them some internet. And I'm like, okay, okay, let's see it. Let's just get them the internet. And it's like, ugh. Can't do it. That's, yeah, I mean, so in Nebraska, we're Republican-dominated through and through from our Congress reps to the governor, lieutenant governor, two-thirds of the legislature, uh, the mayor of Omaha, you know, I mean, basically all the state constitutional <laughs> officers, attorney general, auditor, everyone, and they don't get shit for broadband. They'll talk about it, but yeah, I go to my sister's farmhouse out in the country, and I still have to try to use my mobile data, and... It, that's a that's an issue that they failed him on, and they've had uniform control of our state for a long time. That they they could have done something about it, but they they don't want to irritate their corporate backers, and mm-hmm. telecoms don't want to work with rural areas because there's no profit incentive when you have few customers. You need a, a government driven mandate to to go out there because um, it's going to cost more than it's um, than you're going to get in revenue, and that's why right. services like the post office are fantastic for rural America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, okay, so then counterpoint. Do you think that Democrats are serving rural America well? Well, not really, but they haven't um, had a, as much of a chance lately either because they're not elected in, in rural areas. So I, I wouldn't blame Democrats right now for not serving rural America that great because rural America is not, they're not representing rural America. Like if, if, if all the Democrats in the House are in urban areas, well, they don't have as much incentive to talk about rural areas because that's not their district. Yeah. So um, they just don't have the, the representation there. I, I think if they could be more competitive, they would have a chance to, and, and maybe they'd be able to force Republicans to because Republicans mm-hmm. would have to moderate their stances because they'd be fearful of losing an election. But when they're not afraid of losing anything they can just do what their national party wants regardless of whether that actually aligns with local voters in a rural area what would it take to make democrats more competitive yeah that's a tough question i, I know i i wish i had like a one-line answer to that because i could be like rich and i'd sell like you know eight million copies of this book what a soundbite yeah <laughs> yes but i don't i mean i i'm better at just saying here's the problem here's how it happened <laughs> the solution is much more difficult just just being honest with you I do believe they're going to have to try to find a way to make everything less nationalized. Like Ben Nelson won in Nebraska. He was able to make the more about local issues. And you see some Democrats do that in swing districts like, like Connor Lamb, uh, you know, for instance. Uh, but it hasn't been something they've been able to replicate. And it's tough because their opponents will try to drag it into a national context. National Democratic Party carries a lot of baggage in rural areas. And our news sources are you know very nationalized Mm -hmm. especially facebook pages so um they have an uphill battle but they need to talk as much as they can about issues affecting that district instead of these big broad culture war things um that will help them win in urban areas It, it may they you know democrats may even win over time but they're not winning rural districts having races focused on these like same five issues that dominate everywhere else if, if you could go to rural nebraska and make it about school district funding and like broadband and hospital closures i think they'd have a 
better chance. But the tough part is most of the money is going to come from outside the state, and those donors may not give a shit about that. Do you think it should? Do you think do what you think should? That, uh, do you think it's a problem that the money is coming from outside of the state? Yeah, it is a problem, but it's a problem everywhere. <laughs> it's a problem with both parties. That's not, you know, I, it's 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 a um, almost like a catch twenty two sort of thing where your opponent's getting you know millions of dollars from out of state, and if you don't get that money, you're going to be significantly outspent. So you have to do it because your opponent's doing it, and then your opponent has to do it because you're doing it. Yeah, you can't be poor on principle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you just say on principle, I'm gonna you know limit my campaign to have 80 percent of my contributions come from within the state well your opponent's gonna have six times the ad spend as you and that's really gonna cripple you so um it is a problem but it's tough to fix and deregulation of campaign finance has just been a boondoggle um i mean citizens united is the poster child but there's been dozens of other cases from all the way to scotus all the way down to appeals courts that have incrementally chipped away at the campaign finance rules that have been in place to stop robber barons. Um, Some of them were implemented after Watergate because of everything that happened there and they've been eroded away. And now, you know, money remains hidden. Um, If the money wasn't so hidden and the donations so unlimited, you would probably see more races being funded locally. What I'm trying to do is bring this down to a local level. When you have um, Mm -hmm. these rules uh, redacted, it affects things all the way down to a, a you know a small state house race in a district of thirty five thousand people, where suddenly the amount of money comes in is you know over a million dollars for this race, whereas in nineteen ninety it was probably like a hundred thousand dollars total. You know, just asinine. You know, the For the People Act is currently in the Senate, and one of the things that it's really pushing for is a public financing model. Uh, which would basically give candidates that could reach that certain threshold of small dollar donations a government match dollar for dollar or whatever formula they work out. But basically the hope in doing that is that by empowering these small dollar donors or people like me and you, it makes politicians pay attention to them as opposed to corporate lobbyists and what have you. Do you think that reforms like that would keep campaign finance more localized it, it could if you um if if you were able to expand it more broadly um you know nebraska had a rule kind of like that called the um campaign finance limitation act i think that was the name of it i'm, I'm forgetting the acronym right now and it was basically um thrown out in the last like six years because all these deregulations at the national level had invalidated that local statute but for a time that local that statute did help make our state legislature races um more reasonable but um it it was you know totally in isolation because it didn't apply to any other races really within the, the the state so if you're gonna have a rule like that for it to have a big effect you know you you would need to have people seriously adhere to the rule enforce the rule and have it applied widely, which is difficult. Okay, so let's bring this back to rural America. Tell me something that makes you optimistic. Like if if you don't have if you don't have the easy solution, just tell me something that's given you a little bit of hope. The, what makes me optimistic is that when p- things are put in a nonpartisan context, people can tend to form together 
on issues even if their parties don't. So just to give you a few examples, and I'm, I'm always using Nebraska because that's where I've spent most of my life. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in the last 10 years, Nebraska has expanded Medicaid, increased minimum wage, implemented casino, casino gambling, and capped payday loan interest rates. Or, so what you know, payday loan companies can charge their customers. Those issues tended to be opposed by the Republicans who hold power in Nebraska. They were only passed because they were passed through a ballot initiative. And that worked because in a ballot initiative, you don't force people to go R or D. You put it in two paragraphs and they just vote on that one issue. The baggage that their parties bring is irrelevant. Yes, are you for minimum wage? No, are you for not minimum wage? And you saw a lot of cross-pollination of Republicans and Democrats working together on those campaigns and voting as a block together to pass them. And that makes me hopeful that there are areas we could find agreement on. Um, Like, I believe there's widespread uh, support in the United States for both parties to limit campaign finance donations. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it's done through a partisan context, it's never going to work as long as one party adamantly opposes it which Republicans do right now. If, if it was put through a ballot initiative, um, state by state, I think you could see some progress. So that makes me hopeful that people aren't just drones or that they can work together. It's tough, though, because legislating that way is very expensive. Each initiative costs a few million dollars to gather the signatures and do the legwork to get it out there. And when you just think about living in a modern society and adapting to the way you know, our society and culture are changing, you need laws constantly updated and changed and, you know, implemented and redacted. And you can't just do a ballot measure for every single thing. It's just impractical. I mean, at most, you could probably get a handful of them in most states and not even every state allows them. So cause for optimism, but then you have to be pragmatic and know that there are significant limitations in how effective that strategy can be. But hopefully with ballot initiatives, it's like you can kind of realign the goalposts for like the rules that people would then use to legislate if it has to be down a party line. No. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You you could take out some of the some of the venom. And it also helps something I, I believe that helped Nebraska pass Medicaid, even though they significantly opposed Obamacare. Uh, and these are both, you know, government mandated health care is that with the ballot initiative, it isn't a tied to a specific person so it's much harder to attack an issue it's easy to attack obamacare because it's from a democratic president that's a good point you know it has a face it has a name mm-hmm. uh, attacking a concept or or just a law by itself that um a faceless group of people are pushing is difficult to demonize or more difficult to demonize that is Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to think about it. Is it's really it's difficult. You can't run an yeah. You can try, but I, d- I don't think it sticks the same way. You know, you don't have your pro wrestling villain like you do mm-hmm. when it's tied to a human being. Yeah, um, it's interesting with Nebraska because I feel like in a way you guys are kind of mavericks. It's like there's a lot of interesting pro democracy stuff coming out of Nebraska. Why do you think that is? That's just always been our state's history. I mean, it was like you know. When it was settled, it was by these pioneersmen, and they kind of bucked 
conventional wisdom. I mean, Nebraska voted against statehood. <laughs> what? You know, who does that? Why? Because it was going to raise taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's so on brand for Nebraska, though. Yeah. They eventually they eventually relented, obviously. But when it, you know, when it came up, first time, people were afraid, oh, joining the union, we're going to have to pay all these additional taxes. We don't want that. We'll just be these a territory. <laughs> and, you know, we, we supported... Um, you know, back when populism actually meant something, uh, you know, people like William Bryan were um, very much independent of like the given parties of that time and and had their own uh, independent streak. And I believe the most clear application of our history of, um, you know, weird progressivism is in our state legislature. It's the only legislature in the United States that's nonpartisan. That's just us, like, walking a different beat. How do we get more of that? I want more of this Nebraska energy nationwide. Yeah, that's what I, that's what, that's what I, I, I've, I'd like more of that as well. And it's it's been tough because uh, even within our own state, that nonpartisan legislature has become more partisan. And our unique way of allowing, you know, we, we, we give electoral votes in a unique way. Like, we're only us in Maine split it by district. So, you don't, if you win the state of Nebraska, you could still lose mm-hmm. a vote. Like, Trump won the state of Nebraska Biden got the Omaha vote. We're very unusual in that. Republicans have tried 17 times since 1993 to end that. So um, all these norms are under threat. Um, how do you get more of that? I, I'm not sure because the only reason Nebraska has these idiosyncrasies is because they were adopted, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> They're just under threat now and people protect them from f- crumbling. But how do you create more of that in other states? I don't yes, have a good answer. we need to bottle Nebraska's energy and just ship it state to state. Because there's something, there's something going on there. Like, I feel, I feel like there's a lot of, um, I guess, yeah, it's that independent spirit that you're talking about in Nebraska and Maine. That'd be the other one. Maybe Alaska. Yeah. But, but though all, I can't stress enough how much people have tried to change that independent spirit. And in some ways it has become less independent. Like, even within our own state, you know, it's tough to apply it elsewhere because there's so much pressure from parties to make our own state adapt to the same thing that's happening in every other state. Do you... Okay, this is kind of a, this is a random question, but bear with me because I'm curious. Um, do you think that parties are too strong or too weak? I think they're too strong. Like, I, I don't think it's good for the parties to, to dictate so much mm-hmm. like they do now. Um I believe it would be better if the parties had more leeway in where their members could lean. Like, I think government functioned better, like, let's say 40 years ago, when you you had actual liberal Republicans and you had conservative Mm. Democrats. Like, those terms seem crazy now because it it just, if I say Democrat, like, you assume someone is moderate at (laughs) most, probably Mm -hmm. liberal, you know, And, and same with Republican. Um, like you don't have Nelson Rockefeller mm-hmm. anymore. You, you have people who are very far to the right if they are Republicans in Congress. I, I don't think that's good because now we have extreme choices on the ballots. When the, when the choices were less extreme, um, the, the severity of the fallout of an election wasn't so crazy. So I, I don't think we're in a good spot where but we if are. I, right so now. if I press you on that, because one of the arguments that I've heard recently that I'm not... I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I'm somewhat receptive to it, is if our parties were stronger, they would keep ideologues from 
seizing control of the party. Like, if the Republican... Oh, you're saying, like, they, yes. they would stop, yeah. like, a Trump person? What do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> mm. I, I guess it, it's nice to think of it that way, that um, there have been crazy people in the past who, like, were thrown out of the party convention before, you know, everything was, like, more mm-hmm. voted on by the people. You know, before mm-hmm. we had direct representation, uh, essentially. Like, if you go uh, way back, um, I, I believe one of the, the Coors magnets uh was um trying to get into politics and, and the republican establishment was like you're too crazy you know um like that's happened with with many rich what people a wonderful over world. time um i think henry ford might even that might even happen oh, wow. with henry ford um so i i guess there is that but i i just i'm, I'm skeptical that um the party establishment really will have the best interest of the people um even with what happened with Trump, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm just skeptical they're going to keep out the, the ideologues. Because when I think about like the parties right now, the ideologues um, seem to be who's running the party. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me about this book. Okay, well, my book is Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. And... What I'm looking at is how we went from a bipartisan state when I was born, electing Democrats and Republicans and many moderates, to how we become dominated by the far right and how that's symbolic of what's happened nationally because other states with low population density have experienced the same thing. And I tell that story through interviewing many, many people, governors, senators, uh, lobbyists, and so on but I also have a lot of memoir in there too because I'd have to you know talk about my strange experience with the rural urban divide to tell it fully I think that's I mean I'm looking forward to reading it I have ordered it and it just is not at my house yet (laughs) oh thank you yeah but I I mean I encourage anybody listening to check it out as well Um, especially you folks in Nebraska Uh, so is there a question that I should have asked you and I didn't hmm you know, I tend to end up talking about too long foo whenever these interviews happen. Tell so, me. So uh, I guess you could have asked uh, what's the most exciting <laughs> thing to happen in your hometown. And I would yeah. reply, well, the, the, the making of too long foo happened in our small town uh, back in the 90s. Patrick Swayze and John Leguizamo and Wesley Snipes, drag queens across America stranded in rural Nebraska. My dad fixed what? Swayze's <laughs> air conditioner. What is this? This is a movie. Yeah, it, it, this is how the book opens up. The first passage of the book is about my uh, my dad seeing these guys in drag. Um, it's a great movie. <laughs> Check it out. '90s camp movie. Um, most of the movie takes place in Snydersville, Nebraska. Because so the movie starts out and it's like these drag queens in New York are venturing out to California for this big ball. Mm-hmm. They're gonna drive all the way. Their car breaks down in rural Nebraska, and then that's when the hilarity ensues. And that town of Snydersville is actually Loma, Nebraska. That's where it's filmed, and that's um, just right outside where I lived. So we had a lot of merch, and uh, it's a source of fond nostalgia. Do you do you have this merch? Uh, I have a shirt somewhere in a closet back in Brainerd at my parents' house. I don't have it on me. I have the Brainerd History book behind me um, that talks about it a little bit, but that book isn't focused just on Tu Lung Fu, but it has a passage within it 
That's a mistake. Well, you know, there was a book. It's out of print. I've had trouble getting a copy of it. It's it's called Loma Wood, and it's about this whole thing. Um, I think it was self-published, like, in the 90s, mm-hmm. and I, I have had difficulty finding a library or um, even a used bookstore that has. If any listener has a copy of Loma Wood, I would pay you good money for yeah, it. Yeah, if you do... Please email the show and we will get that to rise. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm the, what an unexpected gem that was. I asked a couple people that question and that is by far the best answer that I have received. I'm glad I could deliver. Yes, I will be Googling that movie as soon as we get off of this interview. Oh, I'm sure it's streamable. We watched it on Netflix again about six months ago, but with streaming rights, yeah. you know, who knows what service it's oh, I'll on. I'll find it. I'll buy it if I have to. Patrick Swayze is a drag queen in Nebraska is must-have content. Oh, I think John Leguizamo is the real oh, yeah? star of the movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'll keep you posted. I'll watch it, and I will, I'll assess them fairly. Okay. And I will get back to you about who is the superior drag queen. I look forward to your review of Tuong Fu. So, Russ, thank you so much. I mean, what a what an interview and what an unexpected gem you have brought into my life <laughs> so hey I, i'm just i'm just glad to to bring awareness to that movie yeah i <laughs> what a gift all right thank you for being on the show well thanks for having me on you've been a star it's an absolute pleasure all right good to hear all right take care see ya all right guys that's it for me and ross if you enjoyed the conversation i encourage you to read his book I am three-fourths of the way through it, and I'm really, really, really sincerely enjoying it. I will drop the link to purchase that book or check it out in the show notes. But before you go, I have one more critically important thing to share with you guys. Wesley Snipes. He's been a killer and a commando. Patrick Swayze. He's been a heartthrob and a hero. But these tough guys are about to face the most physically challenging roles of their careers. Let's give it to them, girls. Meet Vita Boheme. Enchanté. Why are you crying? Maybe she just found out Menudo broke up. Miss Noxima Jackson. Jesse's daughter. And their protege, Chichi Rodriguez. I'm the Latino Marilyn Monroe. I got more legs than a bucket of chicken. That's right, guys. I watched Tu Wong Fu. And I just want you to know that the full title is Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything. And all that I can say after watching it truly is Tu Wong Fu, thank you for everything. That movie, it's a freaking treat. It is. It did not disappoint. And I think that it... Uh, it exceeded my expectations. Very underrated. You guys should absolutely check it out. It is peak 90s camp and it's glorious. If you guys are into cheesy movies like that, you are, you'll love it. And for the record, Ross was right. John Leguizamo is the superior drag queen. I yield. All right, guys, stay safe. I'll see you next time. Bye.